Hello and welcome to the only podcast that's all about Fort Meade, our community, and life in the military. I'm your host, Joe Nieves. And I'm your co-host, Sherry Kuiper, and you're listening to Fort Meade Declassified. So let's just dive in. We've got Kelly Anderson here, director of Sarah's House. So good morning, Kelly. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, let's just get into it. What, what is Sarah's House? So interesting question, right? Especially yeah. since we're here on Fort Meade. Um, so Sarah's House is actually Anne Arundel County's homeless shelter. And it's a very unique partnership between Anne Arundel County Um, because we are the county's homeless shelter and we coordinate with the Department of Social Services. We are managed by Associated Catholic Charities Baltimore, Mm -hmm. so all of our employees are actually Associated Catholic Charities employees. And so we came into an existence um, 33 years ago through what's called the McKinney-Vento Act. And what that did was that was federal legislation that allowed for um, federal property to be utilized to help serve the homeless. So a group of kind of engaged community activists in Anne Arundel County got together and said, hey, we have a problem, we need to find a solution, and partnered up with Department of Social Services, Fort Meade, and then Associated Catholic Charities, and Sarah's House was born. So 33 years later, we're still in the exact same property, um, you know, working to serve the needs of those experiencing homelessness in the county. Yeah. And Kelly, where, where exactly is the property? So people listening know when they're driving up 175... What road are you off of there? So we are off of 20th Street. The best way that I can describe it at this point in time is if you're coming to see us, once you hit the orange construction cones, you should (laughs) slow down. And when you see the missile, missile. you want to turn at that road right there. So if you're familiar with the area, we are located directly behind the veterinary clinic. And we are the long list of buildings behind there. So I know a lot of people think shelter and think one building. We are actually eight buildings. So we take up a pretty expansive piece of Fort Meade over there. Yep, absolutely. Well, that's that's incredible. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, aside from being on Fort Meade, what, what is Sarah's House's relationship with Fort Meade? So we actually have um, a very good relationship with Fort Meade, and it's something that we're looking to expand as well, which is one of the reasons that I'm so grateful to have been, you know, invited to come and speak with you all today. So the um, Army Corps of Engineers does provide some funding for us. Um, Most of that is to help with upkeep of the World War II buildings, right? Um, we serve a lot of people on a yearly basis, so there's a lot of wear and tear on buildings that are already older and older by the day. So there is some funding that we receive basically um, just to be able to continue to stay in those buildings for them to operate in a safe and effective manner. So let's let's talk a little bit about the number of people supported by Sarah's House. You already said that you serve many people throughout the year. Um, and you said there's eight buildings. So what's the number of families you're capable of, of, of taking care of? So I'll, um, I'll first tell you a little bit kind of about our two main programs because that way I'll be able to break the numbers down um, in something that makes sense. So we have two main programs. One is our emergency shelter program. And the second is our Project North Supportive Housing Program. So those eight buildings is a lot of space, and we Mm want to try to utilize um, it to serve as many people as we possibly can. So what we have is we have the shelter, which we call our capacity 66 on a daily basis. Now, the kind of cool thing about Sarah's house is that we don't necessarily serve the same number of people at any point in time because people can determine what a family is. So it could be myself and three children, and that's one room, and it's four people in a family. Or it could be myself and my adult daughter in a room, and that's only two people in a family. 
So that kind of accommodates and accounts for the way that we have differing numbers. Um, we're a little bit different than your average shelter in that we don't have open bays. Years ago we did, and it's actually really cool because as we're kind of going back and recreating some history on Sarah's house, we found some pictures of just open bays when we served all men in one area. Oh, wow. Or open bays where it was all women. And now we actually have individual rooms. So when a family comes to us, they have an individual room with a door that locks. And I'm getting goosebumps now because we had a young lady who had a 10-year-old son at the time, terrified when she came into shelter mm. because she didn't know if she was going to have to, you know, sleep with her arms wrapped around her child. Yeah. She kind of yeah. knew shelter from what was seen on TV. And when she got with us um, and she was given a key and she walked to a door and she just kind of broke down crying. Yeah. And I was a program assistant at the time. And I said, what's wrong? You know, oh my gosh. And she said, um, I'm so grateful that I'm not going to have to worry about the safety of my child tonight. And it was so impactful because yeah. it was just so real. I thought of myself as a parent and how important it is, you know, to be in a safe arena um, and to not worry about my child and what's going on. So really, really neat that over the years we've been able to kind of adjust and move from those open bays into the individual rooms. The second part of our program is what we consider our Project North program, Project North being the star that kind right. of leads us all. Yep. Um, and it is actually a project-based supportive housing voucher program that we run in conjunction with the Housing Commission of Anne Arundel County. So in all of those buildings that we have, somewhere mixed in between, we have 22 apartments that are located on our property. They are one, two, and three bedroom apartments, and people have the opportunity to apply for them mm -hmm. after shelter in order to get a little bit of an extended stay. Fantastic opportunity because um, it's still a subsidized program, mm -hmm. so we do have a monthly rent, but people pay 30%, and then the Housing Commission subsidizes the other 70% of wow. that. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, it really is. It gives them a little bit of an opportunity to you know, address barriers to them getting um, obtaining self-sufficiency and getting back right. out into the community. Yeah. So with those 22 apartments, it depends. We typically have about anywhere between 70 um, to 80 people in those particular programs at any point in time. So 125, 150 people on property. Wow, wow that's a lot. It is. And the other unique thing about your shelter, too, so it's a, f a family shelter. So men, women, children. I know a lot of shelters can be very specific to, yeah. you know, to men only, to women and children. You're open to everybody. We are open to everybody. We serve intact families. We serve single men and their children, single women and their, women and their children, same-sex couples. You know, it is, it is completely and totally um, up to the family to determine um, what kind of grouping that they come in as. The only recommendation for Sarah's house is that you must be experiencing homelessness in Anne Arundel County, and you must be an Anne Arundel County resident. Okay. Like you said, it is different. Um, you know, there's a lot yeah. of places where you can't have a son over the age of 13 or you can't be, you know, a male. And we really want to make sure that we're serving our neighbors that are in need of help and not bringing in folks from other counties. That yeah, because unfortunately, homelessness doesn't care how old you are. It does not. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter if you're over 13. It does not. <laughs> it does not. And one of the saddest things um, was last year, we actually had an 87-year-old woman. Oh. And it was heartbreaking and devastating. And, you know, we just had to work and work and work to attempt to get her into some kind of permanent housing. 
And it's sad because you would think that maybe there was, you know, senior housing available or things right. like that. But the wait list for most senior housings at this point in time is anywhere from a year to a year and a half long. Wow. Yeah. And that's at the minimum. We have some programs in our county that it's five mm -hmm. years long. And people don't leave senior housing just to leave senior housing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, so we try to be really creative Ugh. in trying to find housing opportunities. Yeah. COVID is a serious problem. How are you guys dealing with that over at the shelter? So it, um, it has been really interesting, you know, to start at first, I'd say it was very overwhelming. We didn't know what to do. You know, I think as um, a county overall, we were concerned about how we were going to right. handle it. Um, but what we've done is we've really done a lot of collaboration with the county, with the Department of Health, with a variety of places that have helped us figure out how we can still effectively but safely serve people. So originally in the beginning, we kind of reduced our numbers and we did that by finding other ways to get people into housing, regardless of how we had to do it. Um, we also moved some of our folks that were pending move into Project North. So with the application process, it can take a little bit of time. So we just kind of jumped and put them in there so we could spread, spread people out a little bit. Um, we have done some kind of rearranging in our dining room area. So prior to COVID, we used to have up to 66 people in the dining room within like a 40-minute time frame. Imagine that with 60% of that population children. So you've got, you know, 40 kids running around and 20 adults trying to yeah. right. get them and to kid, sit down. And kids don't understand social distancing. At all. Yeah. Right. Some of, some of us don't understand social distancing <laughs> at all. As I said, adults don't yeah. understand. Yeah, we're seeing that. Yeah. We're humans. That's what we do. It's hard. Yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's hard especially, I think, in a, in a tough situation, you want to... There, there, there are people in like scenarios, like in their life. So, you know, you tend to gravitate towards people who are in the same situation as you. Yep. So yep. I can imagine it's, it must be tough having to not connect to other people. That's, that's got to be hard. You add all of that in, um, you know, on top of issues with mental health, yeah. Yeah. issues with substance use disorders. Um, you know, the majority of our clients have had some serious experience with trauma in the past. Of course. Yeah. And we know what trauma imagine. does to the brain. You know, right. it makes it so that people aren't able to make those decisions. You know, they really need a lot of coaching. They really need a lot of other things. So we have been dependent upon our community partners. We have asked and re-asked, you know, hey, could you come in? Could you look at this again? Could you get me another set of stickers? <laughs> you know, could you could you do whatever the case may be? And we've been very transparent. You know, we've been very transparent with our staff. We've been very transparent with those that we've served. Mm -hmm. And we've yeah. said, you know, basically, hey, we want to keep you safe and we want to keep us safe. And right. this is the way that we're going to have to do it. Um, and sometimes, you know, taking that kind of hard line with just a lot of reinforcement and a lot of, of kindness and things around it yeah. gets you really good results and it's worked for us. So knock on wood, we've not had any cases, you know, from client, staff, or anybody else. So we've been good. extremely good. lucky. Good. Yeah, extremely lucky. Good. Because there's a lot of things that have changed over the years, um, you know, looking back, you said you had bays filled with men and sometimes bays filled with just women. Um, but some things we've seen change over the years is like um, males coming forward uh, after being abused uh, and, 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 and issues like that. Like, um, how has that how has Sarah's house evolved and grown with with issues like that? 
So one of the things that um, we are really diligent about is making sure that we are at all times doing what is in the best interest of the population that we serve. So I said, you know, the director prior to myself, I used to say, man, the reason I love her so much is that she gives us the opportunity to grow, not change, because people think change and they have a negative connotation, right. you know, because yeah. change insinuates you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Growth means that you're willing to look at what you have going on in front of you and you're willing to, you know, expand services, add in new things, find right. new community partners, reach out to additional volunteers, whatever it is that we need to do to serve those that, you know, are in our programs at any point in time is what we're going to do. And I'll be very honest with you, that's not always comfortable, right? Because right. we're people and we get kind of pigeonholed and that tunnel vision thing is, is horrific. Um, we work really hard with our staff on perception. We work really hard with our staff on understanding the difference between change and growth. We work really hard with our staff on saying, you got an idea? Let's try it. And if, you know, it fails miserably, hey, oh, well, we go back to the drawing board. And if there are some things that we need to adjust, we can just adjust them along the way. So there's a lot of buy-in from, you know, those of us that are serving the people in our program um, that we are going to do whatever is needed at any point in time to service those that walk through our doors. Catholic Charities operates from the perspective of we are going to meet every person where they are, regardless of where they yeah. are. Um, and we really take that to heart. You know, we really, really work on learning a person, knowing what their struggles are, and then trying to find a way to help them remove any barriers to self-sufficiency. Yeah, I love that because we're all different. I mean, yeah. Joe and I could walk in and we're going to be at very different places in our lives, oh, in yeah. our situation. And, you know, you can't just a blanket solution doesn't always work. So love that they're focusing on. I mean, I love that. What'd you say? Meeting where you are. Yep. So that's, that's really cool. And it's and, hard. And, and um. I, and I like, I like, I, I want to latch on to something you said where you said something about buy-in. I think that's really important for people to understand what that means to be into what you're doing in a way that it goes beyond a job, you know, like, that, in a lot of ways, that's what service members do. You know, they, they have to live that way. So it's really great to hear that it happens in other places, especially with people right. who need so much. So it's really great to hear. I can only imagine what the rest of your team is like. There is a, um, that just gives me goosebumps that you said <laughs> that. So it, that's very real, right? Um, a service member lives this life 24-7. Um, you know, somebody that's in the business of dealing with folks that have some pretty severe issues. We talk all the time about re-traumatization. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you have to sit down and you have to listen to the horrific things that some of our clients have gone through, you know, you walk away carrying that burden too. Yeah. Right. If something horrible happens and you have to, you know, because of safety issues or something, you have to to, you know, have a family exit the program mm -hmm. and you see them down, you know, the street at, at the, you know, gas station or something like that with three small children, there is definite kind of repercussions of, of the making those kind right. of decisions. The team is a growth-minded, proactive team. Like, they are folks that want to grow themselves, they want to grow our program, and they want to grow our clients. So they that is their focus. That is what they do. And every day, of course, it looks a little bit different, sure. right? You never know what yeah. you're walking into. <laughs> yeah. 
um, but they are folks that are flexible. They are there for the right reason. They truly care about the services that we're providing. And I think somebody asked me the other day, they were like, well, why do you do what you do? And I'm like, because I love working with the team. Yeah. Like the folks that we serve are absolutely fantastic. We learn, learn just as much from them on a daily basis as they learn from us. And probably we learn more sometimes, right? Yeah. Um, but the folks that I work with are inspirational. You know, they hear things, they see things, and they still go home, and they're good parents to their own children. Yeah. You know, they still go volunteer in other places. They still offer to come cut the grass at the shelter on the weekend. Yeah. You know, they're just a fantastic group of folks. That's, I'm just, I don't have anything to say. This is so nice to hear. Yeah. <laughs> No, because that is, that is hard work to do. Yeah. And, you know, even though they're they're getting paid, it's still hard work. Yeah. Not everybody wants to do that kind of work. Not everybody's cut out to do that kind of work. And I've been over to Sarah's house a few times, and it's very much, you know, if, if you didn't know it was a homeless shelter, you wouldn't know. It's a homeless shelter. Just it's just, you know, it just, you just go in. Everybody's in a good mood. Everybody's happy. Um, you know, I honestly don't know the difference between the staff and the people there. And I say that because I have come across, I've been in contact with the people who live there and they're just as friendly and warm and inviting. I'm like, do you work here? Yeah. No. And, in light and of the, you know, in light and of the I think that's, that they're in, that's right. a reflection of the staff. Right. And I yeah. think that's a good thing because it's, like Joe, like you just said, it's a reflection of what's happening there. Right. So when everybody, it's just you kind of come into that really warm environment. There isn't a lot of separation. You can tell you and your team are integrated with the families because you go in and you're like, I'm not really sure who's who around here. And I know I've talked to people. I'm, I'm like asking for directions or I'm like, what building do I go to? And, and they just... They just tell you, so it's a very, very uh, cool vibe you got going over there, Kelly. I'm glad to hear that. We, yeah. are, we are working on growing it every day. I mean, you know, kind of along with the growth-minded thing, we, we implement new things. We find new ways to do things. Yeah. Just Monday, we had a Thanksgiving in August, and quite honestly, my stomach Yum. still hurts, right? That sounds good. <laughs> right, it was. It was Why fantastic. We always talk about food on this podcast. I don't know. Food always <laughs> food comes up. up a lot, and now you're talking about Thanksgiving, and that just, oh. It was yeah. bad planning, though, because it was a lunch for staff at 1.30 in the afternoon, and I take the fall for that because that was totally my thing. You can't expect people to do work at after eating a Thanksgiving meal Heck at no. 1.30 in the afternoon. Can't expect much out of somebody after that. Right. I could just picture kind of the staff just, like, laying there. Well, that wasn't even uh, just the staff. Open. That was me, too. Yeah. <laughs> or is that, that just me? me? <laughs> is no, that just me? Everybody. <laughs> no, it was, you know, we're just, we're just constantly trying to make sure that as much as we care for the people that we serve, we also the, we care for the people that are on our staff. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's you know? important. That's what makes them come to work every day. I agree. Exactly. Absolutely. I agree. What kind of programs to help them get into the workforce? Because I'm, I'm assuming that that's kind of an end goal for a lot of them is to get in the workforce and, and get out of the shelter. So what, what is going on there? What do you guys so got? It is an end goal, and we kind of have two parts to it, and I'll, I'll talk to both parts. So the first thing... Um, that I haven't yet mentioned is that we have a licensed child care facility on our property. Oh, wow. So literally for folks that we're currently serving and people that are transitioning out while they're in the process of finding, um, you know, child care in the community um, can have their children in our licensed child care facility, you know, 10 hours a day. Mm -hmm. 
with activities and we work off of the Frog Street curriculum and we take field trips and all of the wonderful things that other child care centers do, we do. Hugely important because how do we expect anybody to get a job if they don't have, you know, a consistent place for their yes. children to be? Uh-huh. Right. And that's an important that's an important need for people is to make sure their children are taken care of. Huge, especially yeah. when they've experienced um, you know, trauma yeah. and right. when things have happened in their past and, and that is just such a it's such a psychological barrier. You know, I can't do this because of that. Right. So we've got this child care center, you know, where our kids are there, they're happy, all that kind of stuff. And while the children are working, because at that age, right, they're playing to learn. Mm. Yeah. So while the children are working, we're working with the parents. And we start with the very basic stuff. So the first thing we're going to find out is what do you want to do? What, what are your goals? Because it right. doesn't matter if they're my goals. What are you interested in? And oftentimes we find that people have no clue. Yeah. Right? They yeah. have no clue. They're still trying to figure that right. out. They've done a lot of kind of this and a lot of that. But none of it has really been kind of um, working its way towards one thing. So we find out what a person wants to do. And then we put a plan in place from there. For some people, we're working on soft skills. We're trying to teach them about the importance of attendance, about the importance of being at work on time, about how to dress when you go to an interview, right? Right. There was one gentleman who was going to an interview one time. Absolutely love him. He walked by the front desk and he had on his Marvin the Martian t-shirt. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, no, mm-mm, stop. We got to get this taken care of, you know? So, again, meeting people where they are, truly trying to find out what it is they need because I'm not going to work with somebody on soft skills if they've been working in an agency for 20 years and they don't need that. Yeah. Right. They just need to freshen up their resume and get back out there, right? Right. So in conjunction with the children being in child care and us kind of working with that, we also try to partner with the community, with different employers, and what we basically say is, hey, we've got folks that are everywhere from entry level to master's degrees. And yeah. we may need somebody that, you know, could possibly have a criminal background to get a job to restart them. Mm-hmm. Or we may need somebody that's just been laid off for the last three months because of medical reasons. Right. But we need to find somewhere for them to get their foot in the door. Right. And what we promise the employer is that we are going to be their support. Mm-hmm. So if they're having an issue with somebody showing up for work, they can call us and we can troubleshoot the problem and see if we can fix it. Maybe it's a problem with transportation. Maybe it's a problem with child care. We'll try to put a plan in right. place. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship for everybody. We get people working, which means we can get them qualified for housing. Right. The children are being taken care of. And we're also supporting our community businesses, right? right? We're making sure that businesses have the opportunity to run successfully and pump money back into our communities. Right. That's fantastic. And I love what you said, and I'm going to just hang on this because I think it's so important. Um, you said entry level to master's degrees. So I think it's just really important for anybody listening to really think about homelessness. Now, there's a whole study that Dr. Brown does called, what's it called? Help me out, Kelly. Poverty Mids Planning. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and, you know, if you really look at it, you can Google it, and it comes up, and you will see that in Anne Arundel County, and it's specifically a study on Anne Arundel County. You know, there is a lot of poverty out there, and it's our neighbors, and it's the people with master's degrees that you think is at a certain level that they're not experiencing poverty, and many people in this county are just one bad incident a bad car accident, a medical issue, a layoff away from being in poverty. 
Um, I know that we live in a county that's very fruitful in a lot of ways. And, you know, we have all of our uh, federal workers who, you know, there's this there's misconception that federal employees make a ton of money. That's not necessarily true. There's a conception that our service maker members make tons of money. That is we not necessarily true. Right. That's not necessarily true. And, you know, so just to really think about this, poverty is not something that just happens to people who have like substance abuse issues. Of course, there's other reasons that, you know, we can get into that, but just really want you to think about the fact that that poverty isn't just any one person. You do bring up a good point. Um, so kind of going along um, the question that was asked earlier about how do we change, you know, how do we yeah. grow? So a few years ago, we started seeing, you know, more clients coming to us that had some what we call behavioral health disorder. So that could be a mixture of mental health and substance use, um, as we often know that they're intertwined. And right. so what we did was we kind of went out and got funding because we knew we weren't going to be able to just do it on our own. So we went out and we got funding to have a full-time therapist on our property. Oh, no. great. So she's there full-time, five days a week. She does intake. She does follow-up therapy sessions. She does group sessions for somebody that may not necessarily be comfortable, um, yep. you know, coming in and talking one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. And what we find is that if we can kind of get people in, if we can pull them in and start them talking then they can start healing. Right. Right? Because you have to heal from this trauma. You can't just continue to carry it around and think that your actions are going to be the same and your behaviors are going to be the same. You have to heal. Yeah. yeah. And so we're able, you know, through those services to actually provide a place for people to heal. Start the process. Right. Because in the long run, what we want is we want people to be able to get back out into the community and be productive citizens that are able to contribute, that are able to, you know, make Anne Arundel County and, and the surrounding areas this fantastic, you know, even better place than it already is. But we have to give people a space to heal first. Yeah. If we don't, we can't expect that other part to happen. What, what brought you to where you are? Like, what led you to this field, you know? So it's probably a run-of-the-mill story. So I'm actually a, a teacher by degree. That was my initial degree. I was um, in the process of getting a divorce, and I needed something to kind of fill some spare time. Husband was <laughs> an active duty service member. And I Googled volunteer activities near me, and up popped Sarah's house. Closest <laughs> thing. I was thinking to myself, I had four children at home at the time. I was thinking to myself, great, it's close. You know, I can go in, get a couple of hours, leave out, not a big deal. And I absolutely fell in love with what was happening there. I'll probably get a little bit emotional. So I started as a volunteer. Great, because I, I get emotional when other people get emotional. I'm like, I don't even know why I'm crying. So Joe, just be prepared. <laughs> yeah, you're I'm, welcome. I'm you're going you're to have two sobbing women here in a second <laughs> to deal with. So I started in the child care center because I thought that that would be the best place because I had been yeah, a teacher, makes right? Sense, so I was yeah. like, great. And I worked with a, a lovely lady whose name was Miss Annie. And she was the sweetest, kindest person you've ever met. She, you know, the children, just every time they came in, they ran to her. And I thought to myself, Aww. oh, this is pretty cool. Then it was Christmas time, which, as you can imagine, is one of the most hectic times at the shelter. Mm. And so I switched over to volunteering in the Christmas area. So I had a lot more exposure to all of the kind of the bigger picture of the program. And... It was the busiest time. I spent probably nine hours a day there at the time, unpaid, just as a volunteer. But as I started listening 
to little snippets of stories and successes and watching, I thought to myself, you thought you loved teaching. Like you really thought you loved teaching and that teaching was your passion, but this is where you need to be. And for me, there's an aspect of teaching, right? Because you teaching is reaching somebody and then being able to kind of give them information and share information sure. and be able to receive information as well. But then there's also the huger, you know, much more large aspect of talking to people and, right. and affecting the rest of people's lives. Mm -hmm. And it was hard because I said to a person at the time, I was like, um, so this can't always be successful, right? Everything can't be roses and daisies. And they said, well, here's the deal. Let me tell you what we do here. We plant seeds. And just like anything else, you don't get to say when your seed grows, right? Mm. You plant a seed and you hope for a cucumber or you hope for that pretty <laughs> yellow flower. In my house, it never comes. No, you not mine either. <laughs> right. But what happens is, is you water the seed consistently, mm -hmm. right? You have the same message. You give the same love. You give the same everything else. And sometimes that's tough love. Sometimes right? you have to say, hey, you can't do that. Stop, yeah. you know? Yeah. But when that seed is ready to grow, when it's right for that seed to grow, that's what's going to happen. And so you can't be here and think that everything is going to be roses mm -hmm. and daisies. But you have to think about the long term. And when this person told me that, I said, oh, let me go apply. And yeah. I did. I applied and I've been there for 13 years now. So even just volunteering there helped me understand what my true passion was yeah. yeah i'd argue you can have more than one passion in life too agreed and as you grow those things change agreed and that's okay too and they should yeah because they should you get exposure to new things and and you you know get to work with new people and and i just i want to point out one thing you said and other uh folks uh Brittany from uso said the same thing you started out as a volunteer then you got the job and now, just very recently, you were put in charge as the director of Sarah's House. Volunteering is probably one of the biggest things if you're, if you're looking for a career change or just looking to, as you were, kind of fill time and see what happens. Volunteering is really incredible. Places like the USO and Sarah's House could always use some volunteers. How can Fort Meade residents, we got, we got lots of people here, how can they get involved at Sarah's House? What are some things they can call you up and say, Kelly, I'm in. I want to volunteer. I want, I want those goosebumps and warm feelings too. So let me just tell you that when anybody calls me, my initial question to them is, what can you do? And that could be anything from, are you really good at resume writing? Um, do you have a ton of people that you could organize a comforter set drive? Um, you know, do you really enjoy doing outside work? Are you dying to paint a shelter room? <laughs> I was going to say. Right? You know? <laughs> do some maintenance. Yeah. It yeah. could be anything in the world. We have space for it at Sarah's house. Okay. Um, one of the cool things about constantly serving new people is that we constantly have different needs. We may have um, an adult who is struggling with reading. And if we have somebody who is really great at reading and wants to work with them one-on-one one -on -one at some point in time, huge help, huge contribution. We could have, you know, um, a need for financial literacy or a need for a basic, we don't learn it in school anymore, right? So right. a need for a basic financial liter literacy class. Hey, you only have a couple days during the month of September to do that. We'd love to have you. 
right? Anything in the world. Um, of course, right now with COVID, we're struggling with kind of finding mm -hmm. a good balance as far as that is concerned, but we still haven't turned anybody away. Mm -hmm. You know, virtual is amazing. Right. Yeah. Um, obviously, we've got tons of, of needs at the shelter at this point in time, increased needs. Our clients have increased needs. Sure. You're locked in a room, uh, maybe not able to work. You've got a couple of kids yeah. running around, all that kind of stuff. A coloring book drive or a DVD sure. kids movies drive. We could always use help. We could always use help. We've got lots of folks that come in, um, prepare meals, prepare them at home, drop them off to us. Oh, nice. Yeah, bottled water drives. You name it, we're game. We just okay. want to forge the relationship and, you know, make sure that we are the county shelter. You know, we're the community shelter. Right. Everybody has ownership of this. Yeah. These are, like you said, these are our neighbors we're serving. And, but for the grace of God, it could be us too. Yeah. That's great. So how do people find you, Kelly, if they want to volunteer or get connected? Fantastic. So um, we are kind of new and growing in the world of Facebook. So we have a <laughs> Facebook page and that's Friends of Sarah's House. Um, if you go on there, you can connect with us there at any point in time. You can also shoot me an email at any point in time. Uh, my email address is kanderson at cc-md.org. Um, I'm really fast to respond to email. Phone calls typically take a few days, of <laughs> course. Uh, sometimes a lot of messages, but you can also call over to the shelter, 667-600-3550. Um, and one of the front desk staff can put you in touch with the appropriate person. That was Kelly Anderson, director of Sarah's House. Next up, Joe and I are talking to Harry Freeman. He is the chairman for the Complete Count Committee for Anne Arundel County for the 2020 census. This interview was recorded back in August. Since then, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the U.S. Census Bureau has made some date changes for the census. The census must now be complete by September 30th 2020. So we encourage you to go out today and complete your census. You can do that online at 2020census.gov. Here's our interview with Harry Freeman, Chairman of the Complete Count Committee for Anne Arundel County. Let's talk about the, obviously the census and yeah. prior to COVID-19, we had a huge campaign mm -hmm. to get military families on Fort Meade to participate in the census and then smack COVID hit. What's going on with the census now? Where are we with it? Can we still even participate in the census? Yes, yes, excellent question. So you are correct. Uh, when I found out that I would chair the uh, census committee for Anne Arundel County, uh, my immediate attention went to the largest areas uh, in Anne Arundel County and also being a prior service uh, active duty uh, soldier uh, stationed here at Fort Meade, I figured, oh man, Fort Meade, we have got to get things going. This is before I did any research into you know, the uh, historical markings or, or, or how much participation occurred in this area. I was like, we would have to get Fort Meade on the books here. So I met with uh, Mary Doyle uh, here at the uh, PAO's office, and we had a very strong campaign going here. And like you said, COVID hit, and we had to halt our entire field campaign. Right. Uh, so we uh, had to adjust fire, and uh, our next avenue of approach was going to the uh, digital uh, platforms yeah. to uh, maximize outreach. And so, and in the spirit of reaching out to people and trying to get people to, to participate in the census, mm. can, can you go into a little bit of what's, why is the census so important? 
All right. So <laughs> why is the census important? So the importance of the census uh, really affects every bit of our daily lives that many of us don't think about. So if any of you have ever sat in traffic, it's, oh, I wish there was more, there was more space, this lane, there was more mm -hmm. lane. Well, guess what? The census sets projections for population growth. It monitors these things, it tracks these things, and it allows the uh, decision makers uh, at the uh, local, uh, county, state, federal uh, uh, level to make adjustments to the infrastructure. Uh, if you are complaining about overcrowded schools or the uh, student-teacher ratio, you know, all of these things are related to, to the census. If you run out of gas, it's like, oh, I wish there was a gas station right here. Well, guess what? Businesses also use census data to say, oh, man, we have a lot of traffic going here. We have a lot of needs here. We have certain demographics uh, that live here. Like, we have a product that uh, can suit this population. We have, you know, a gas station for, for, for high-traffic vehicles. We have, you know, every single thing that we do as, as residents of an area is based upon census data. It's, it's absolutely important. And it's also a constitutional mandate. Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution uh, calls for um, an enumeration, a complete enumeration, which is a count of every living person uh, in the United States. It's the sixth sentence of the Constitution. That's how important it is. It's, at, wow. it's almost at the very beginning. Why do Fort Meade service members need to participate? Because they come and go. A lot of, you know, they might only be here for a couple of years, right. and they probably have uh, other issues too, like, well, we're not residents of Maryland. So why is it so important for Fort Meade to participate? That is an excellent, excellent question. So uh, as I mentioned before, the uh, census is a count of every living person, regardless of age, ra uh, race, ethnicity, religion, citizenship, status, gender, etc. So Fort Meade is part of this giant puzzle. If you want to imagine the United States as a 330 million piece puzzle, when we fill out the census, we're putting this picture together. And the more pieces we put together, the clearer the picture is that we get of what our country looks like, uh, citizen or not. So the more people we get, the more people we can uh, account for, the clearer picture we have of what our community looks like. Um, I was stationed here uh, at Fort Meade from 2013 uh, through 2015. And um, I, my home of record was Miami, Florida but I still utilized Anne Arundel County hospitals. My son was born in Annapolis. He became right. a resident of Maryland before I did. Okay. So he was born in Anne Arundel County Medical Center in Annapolis. Uh, I use county roads, uh, my home. I was living uh, here in the county. Um, my son will be going to kindergarten this year, so he will be going to our public schools here in this county, just like many of our service members right. uh, that are here at Fort Meade. So every single thing, although you live somewhere else, love it or... Or, or hate it, Fort Meade, Anne Arundel County is your current usual residence. Right. And that is precisely what the census wants to take note of. You know, it is where you spend most of your time. It's where right. you live. It's where you go home and sleep. It's where you wake up and go to work. So this is where Don't you even worry about your residency. Yeah. It don't matter. Just Absolutely. If you're Absolutely. living at Fort Meade, that's, that's what you say. Yep. That's, you you just... are. You fill it out for this area. The address you put in is the address that you currently live in now. Mm -hmm. Okay. How, how does uh, the Fort Meade area historically do? So, historically, Fort Meade does pretty poorly. Mm. So, if we're looking at the numbers, and I'm being completely honest, it's, it's among the worst uh, participation rates. Wow. Partly because of the question that was previously asked. You know, yeah. we have people that come from all over the country, all over the world, that come here to live and work on Fort Meade. It's one of the largest installations in the country. You know, people come here to gather to uh, work 
at uh, some of the agencies we have on campus. They are students at some of the schools that right. are provided here. They work and live here, or they're just service members from other areas uh, of the country. So part of what uh, our committee is doing is we had a huge educational campaign uh, that we started off with to make sure things like uh, this are being well noted. Uh, we spoke uh, at the United States Naval Academy about that very issue of people not uh, calling maybe Maryland their permanent home uh, based on their home of record, but it is currently where they're living. So historically, uh, the numbers have not been very good. Uh, this year, so far, we're at 56.4% uh, uh, household participation in the Fort Meade area. So uh, just about, if you want to look at the numbers, just about every other home has not participated. Wow. Okay. So that's, if, if you, if one of the listeners here has participated, the chances are the person living in front of you, to the left or to the right of you, has, has not. not. So has from not. where I'm sitting, neither of you have participated because I did my census. <laughs> Statistically, <laughs> yes, but Just I kidding. certainly did mine. Yeah. Just kidding. So, so we're up to 56 now. How has it been historically in the past? Uh, even worse. Wow. Even worse, yeah. So the self-response uh, has been in the low 50s. Uh, once the enumerators come around, we expect uh, an increase of 3 to 5%, but that's still very low. Yeah, it's very low. Uh, right now, across the country, uh, there is a national average of 62.1% of households across the country have participated. Um, Maryland is at 66%. Okay. Uh, the county as a whole is at 70.9%. So the oh, county wow. is doing well. But Fort, until we Fort get Fort Meade's bringing it down. Well, Fort Meade is. <laughs> I don't want to say Fort Meade's bringing it down, but no, Fort Meade we, is not bringing it up. We yeah. need to. We need to yeah. definitely participate. So that. So yes, let's talk about the census. Uh, I'm sure you two have done your census. Mine. I got a letter in the mail. Mm -hmm. I was given. I believe it was a code. Yes, ma'am. And I went on the computer. It literally took me less than five minutes. It's. Yes. It was pretty easy. So if you didn't, so you got, probably got a letter in the mail. If you threw out the letter, you didn't get a letter or you're listening, you're like, man, I really want to participate and do this because it really does only take five minutes. Mm -hmm. How can how does one participate in the census? Oh, man, so easy. So for the first time in history, the census, again, it is the sixth sentence of the Constitution, 1790. 1790, that was when the first census took place. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was actually the first uh, um, head of the uh, census count. So that enumeration was... Uh, very historic, and every 10 years, regardless of what was going on in the country, yep. what was going on in the world, every 10 years, this count occurs. So we have got to get this done. And for the first time in history, you are able to do it online. Um, if you got a letter in the mail and you got the pin, like you just mentioned, yep. plug the pin in and you go right into the questionnaire. If you do not have that letter uh, or you did not get the letter, you don't have that pin available, you can still go online at my2020census.gov, my2020census.gov, and uh, there is a hyperlink right below uh, where you would uh, insert the uh, PIN, and it says if you do not have the PIN, click here. It'll ask you certain questions about your home address. You submit that information, and then you go right into the questionnaire. So there is only one step between you and the questionnaire if you don't have that PIN. Okay. Uh, other options are you can always uh, call in. You, you can, there, there's a toll-free number that you can get uh, from the census. Right. Um, and also the old-fashioned way of uh, completing it by mail. Okay. So there's really no excuse. Zero. So if you're sitting there saying, well, I didn't get nothing, we're telling you right now, my2020census.gov, you can do it online. You don't need that letter. You don't need that pin. 
And honestly, when I took it, it was, it was quick. I mean, yeah. you just answer a few questions. You answer about your current state. Or I should say, let me rephrase that. Your current situation right. of where right. I'm living, uh, what's going on with whom, and all of that. And yes, it was pretty straightforward. What do you do then? What happens to the data? So I know you know you said you take it. We use it hmm. for like funding and resources and all these things that we're using around Anne Arundel County. But then what happens to the data? Does it go in a shredder? What do you do with it? Excellent, excellent question. So I know, uh, especially here at Fort Meade, you know, uh, PII data protection sure, is very, 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 very Fort Meade. Excellent, <laughs> excellent question. I like that. Very Fort Meade. It's very Fort Meade question uh, to ask. So uh, the census collects aggregate data, so it doesn't associate PII with anything else uh, that is uh, being asked. So you know, this this general area has X amount of residents. Uh, of those residents, this is the, you know, median income. You know, of this uh, general area, so the Fort Meade, you know, Fort Meade area proper, uh, this is the amount of people who own their homes. This is the amount of people who rent their homes. Uh, this is the, you know, it's, it's all aggregate data, all averages. It doesn't associate, you know, this is where Harry Freeman lives with his five-year-old child, and his five-year-old child has a birth date of X, Y, you know, it does not do that. It is protected under federal law. Title 13 of the U.S. Code actually protects your information under lock and key for 72 years. 72 years was a number given many, many decades ago <laughs> that, uh, you know, it was just the average lifespan of an individual. Okay. So your data is protected for the average lifespan of a yeah. human being. And then what happens in 72 years? Oh, well, uh, you mentioned genealogy earlier. Right. So... Um, genealogists love when new census data comes oh out. Oh my gosh, yes. 1940, woo! Yes, exactly. It. So if you out. take 2020 and subtract <laughs> 72 years, um, you are at what, 1947, right? Mm -hmm. So at 1947, what was the earliest census that was taken? It's every 10 years. Right, so it would have been 1940. 1940. So the, the most recent census data with your details, with detailed information on it that you can have public access to is from 1940. That's wow. even, so the, to put in perspective and make you think of, because I'm not a math person, mm. but that's before my parents were born. Yeah. So that's, I mean, it goes back quite a ways. Your information is secured. Your information does not get shared with law enforcement uh, agencies or departments at any level of government, federal, state, or local. Uh, your information does not get shared with interagency or, or, or intra-agency departments. It is kept at the Census Bureau and it is used simply and purely uh, to uh, complete that puzzle I told you about earlier. And that aggregate information is what gets sent to the states and localities and counties so they can make the proper decision-making um, uh, projects for whatever it is, infrastructure, schools, anything that, that, that we need, SNAP, uh, um, the, uh, the Supplemental nu nu Nutrition Program. Yep. Um, that whole thing uh, is based on the census count. Uh, uh, one more thing I want to get in since I'm talking about SNAP yes, and, oh, yeah. and, and money. For every individual that does not participate, your town, your area, your county, your state, for you, if you don't do this, we'll lose $1,820 a year for wow. 10 years. 
Wow. And that's based off of 2010 money. Wow. In 2010, $675 billion a year is what was sent out to the states and counties across the United mm -hmm. States based off of census information. So there are estimates uh, between $800 billion and $1.2 trillion a year, a year for 10 years, to be sent out to the states and counties and whatnot right. based on the projected census participation rates. So having the online option, we're hoping that more people participate sure. because of its simplicity. Yeah. So for every individual that does not participate, you will lose your general area $1,820 a year for 10 years. That was Harry Freeman, chairman for the Complete Count Committee for Anne Arundel County for the 2020 census. We encourage you to go on to 2020census.gov and fill out your census before the September 30th deadline. That's it for today's episode of Fort Meade Declassified. Connect with us on Digital Meade, the Garrison's new home for news and events. You can find it on our website at home.army.mil forward slash Meade, where you can also find up-to-date information on COVID-19.